Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is about Helen Mary Pickwode, a lovely lady looking for love who fell for the man of her dreams. But owing to arrogance, incompetence, and a grossly unfair law, this love affair led to her slow and agonizing death. Murder Mile contains harrowing details, which may make the uneasy quite queasy, as well as realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 36, Love, Loss, and the Lingering Death of Helen Mary Pickwood. Today, I'm standing outside of the Amber Hotel, two streets south of 35 Bryanston Square, where former Iraqi Prime Minister Abda al-Naif wasn't shot dead by two incompetent assassins. One street east of the Intercontinental Hotel on Park Lane, where he was, and two streets south of number 112 Bryanston Court, where Derek Thayer Lee Smith murdered his own mother over a matter of just a few pounds. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Situated at 508 to 540 Oxford Street, the four-star Amber Hotel is a colossal eight-storey Art Deco hotel from the mid-1930s, with brown brick walls, white metal windows, and a stylish curved corner. Originally called Mount Royal Hotel, its exterior has barely changed since its glory days. Situated as it was, at the back of the infamous corner house tea room, Maison Lyonnaise, where it is said the Blackout Ripper met his first victim. And as with most hotels, 
What happens behind the doors of its 684 rooms is none of our business. Whether they're full of randy couples rutting away, a horny teen bobbing his one-eyed warrior over three minutes of semi-sexy stroke teasers, a seedy Saudi businessman who, each night, has a new girlfriend who stays for only 58 minutes, or two pooped-out parents sodding the shopping trip and savouring a whole weekend of child-free silence. Ah, bliss. But one room has a very sordid history. As it was here, on Wednesday the 20th of May, 1942, that Helen Mary Pickwode died a slow and agonising death. Being born on the 25th of June, 1914, barely five weeks before the outbreak of the First World War. A brutal and bloody conflict which left millions destitute, disabled and dead. By contrast, the early life of Helen Pickwode had no hunger, horror or hardship. As being raised in an affluent middle-class family, the very worst that her upbringing could be described as was delightful but dull. As the youngest of five children, all born to Alice, a devoutly Christian housewife, and Walter, a stern Scottish doctor, Helen was strong-willed and belligerent. But with her father's respectable profession being at stake, as much as their three-storey townhouse was an extension of his prestige, so too were his children and as a necessary appendage to his status. At all times, he demanded that they were well-dressed, well-educated, and well-mannered. And so, although they had food, clothes, and warmth, life was full of rules and routines. But being busy posing as the perfect family, what they lacked was love. As a pretty, petite brunette, with a big heart, brown almond-like eyes, and a sweet smile. Being a true romantic, as much as her parents ushered her towards the dreary life of a housewife and a mother married to a dull, loveless man. Although she dreaded the stigma of bringing shame on her family, Helen dreamed not of wedding bells and babies, but of love romance and passion. By March 1940, aged 25, and still being seen as a sinfully single woman with no husband, ring or offspring, Helen clung to the dream that one day her prince would come. And one day he did. And his name was Captain Tickle. Following the outbreak of the Second World War, on the 1st of September 1939, 
As a well-educated young lady from a respectable middle-class family, Helen was conscripted into the war effort as a censor. Being based at the Postal Censorship Office in Liverpool, Helen was one of 120 censors whose job it was to intercept any letters, parcels or postcards, steam them open, assess the contents and black out any political, illegal or morally dubious sections which may prove detrimental to the war effort. For Helen, life was great. She had a good job, a solid wage, and lived in a three-storey, four-bedroom Georgian terraced house at number 20 Canning Street in Liverpool. One room of which was rented out to a tall, dashing and elegant army captain named Edward Tickle, who would change her life forever. Born on St Valentine's Day, on the 14th of February 1905, in the Irish capital of Dublin, Edward Gerard Tickle was a natural-born charmer whose chiselled good looks could lure any lovely lady and whose cheeky chatter could talk his way out of any trouble. Being loved and loathed in equal measure, Edward was an enigma a man who some saw as either confident or cocky, appealing or arrogant, sweet or selfish, and no matter which, being born into wealth and privilege, Edward Tickle was raised with a high sense of self-worth, a desire to take what he felt was his, and all without any conscience or consequence. having been privately educated at the prestigious Highgate School. After graduation, Edward began an apprenticeship at Lever Brothers. But being a trust fund baby, and having no real reason to work, Edward jacked in the job and piddled off to Hungary to become a sheep farmer. By the outbreak of World War II, having enlisted in the Royal Army Service Corps, he was swiftly promoted to staff captain at the Postal Censorship Office in Liverpool, where he met Helen Pickwood. Based miles away from the prying eyes of her prudish parents, the longer Helen shared the same house as Edward, the more the love blossomed. But with Edward being an enigma, who was loved and loathed in equal measure, as much as Helen was besotted by him, and her best friends, Neil and Mary Barkler, were still undecided, Helen's parents disapproved. As beyond his confidence and his crisp captain's uniform, there was an arrogance about him they just didn't like. One year into their relationship, Edward's supervisor submitted a report to MI5, the British Secret Service, stating that Captain Edward Tickle had staunch political opinions, 
possibly fostered during those two years living in a Hungarian communist kibbutz, and that he required close observation. By March 1941, with Helen in floods of tears, Edward packed up his personal items, moved out of 20 Canning Street, and was transferred to the Postal Censorship Office, 225 miles away, in London. Although distraught, Helen knew that love knew no distance, that they were meant to be together. And that one day she would become Mrs. Edward Tickle. But what she didn't know about her beloved boyfriend was the truth. Captain Edward Tickle was married. In 1929. Thirteen years before Helen and Edward had met, Edward Tickle had married Renee Oriana Haynes in the St Martin's in the Field Church in London. They had two lovely children, and lived happily in Mill Cottage in the quaint Oxford village of Burford. But Helen knew none of this. To Edward, she was just a bit of fun. But being so besotted with him, Helen travelled from Liverpool to London every two weeks to see him. And yet every time she did, Edward ignored her, choosing instead to boast to his army buddies about the many affairs he was having behind his wife's back. As drenched in tears, Helen sobbed her way home. Throughout their relationship, Helen kept a diary. Sometimes she loved him, sometimes she loathed him, sometimes they'd break up, and other times she'd woo him back. But on Wednesday, the twenty-fifth of June, nineteen forty-one, there was just one entry in her diary. It simply read, "My birthday." Nothing from Edward. On Saturday, the seventeenth of January, nineteen forty-two, eager to reignite the dying embers of their on-off dalliance, Helen caught a train from Liverpool to Leeds to London. A deliberately confusing route designed to hide her clandestine affair from her disapproving parents, and with freshly coiffured hair, a poof of perfume, and wearing a pretty dress, she headed into the West End. For a romantic weekend away, with Edward, having booked into the modestly priced Westway Hotel on Ensley Street, conveniently located just opposite Euston Station, Edward and Helen signed in as Mr. and Mrs. Tickle. They stayed in room seventy, and both departed the very next morning. And although it seemed unimportant, that moment marked the start of one life and the end of another.
Over the next three months, Helen wrote the following entries in her diary. Friday the 6th of February, 1942. No curse. Friday the 6th of March, 1942. No curse. And Monday the 6th of April, 1942. No curse. With her body swelling, a small bump in her belly, and having missed three periods, when Dr. Holmes confirmed that Helen was pregnant, she should have been jumping for joy, but she wasn't. As she looked down at her stomach, all she saw was sin. As inside her belly, a baby grew, who was conceived in secret, fathered by a married man, and would be born illegitimate. And as much as childbirth would hurt, the greater pain she felt was the shame she'd bring on her family. And right then, Helen swore that if ever her parents found out, she'd stick her head in the gas oven. Confiding in her closest friends, Neil and Mary Barkler were a rock during this turbulent time, providing Helen with a safe place to stay, and in the warmth of their home, she could have a baby in secret. But in 1942, a pregnant woman had just two options. Have the baby and keep it, or have the baby and don't. Of course, there was always a third option, but that was both illegal and dangerous. Helen tried several times to notify Captain Tickle of the swelling in her belly. But choosing to ignore her calls, letters and telegrams, of the two replies she did receive, both were jokey and dismissive. When told of her confirmed pregnancy, he cut their affair short by replying, Anyhow, we've had a good run for our money. We can't complain. So wanting nothing more to do with the baby, or Helen for that matter, as a privileged man with no conscience or consequence, Edward did as he always did and threw money at the problem. Racked with guilt, the shame that her sinful shenanigans would bring upon her beloved family. On Tuesday the 12th of May, 1942, Helen boarded a train from Liverpool to London. And against Neil and Mary's advice, Edward introduced her to a doctor, whose name was George de Fossard. On the evening of Wednesday the 13th of May, 1942, in the Denmark Public House in Kensington, Helen Pickwode met the impressively titled George Frederick Montague de Fossard over a few light ales with Edward. To any outsider, nothing seemed untoward. There were just three friends chatting over a drink. Although initially suspicious of George de Fossard, 
an unusual little fellow, with a low whispering voice, a nervous shake, and blinking eyes which never met hers. As a 44-year-old German who studied medicine at King's College and had served in the British Army, although such a sordid business wasn't his usual profession, Edward assured her that Dufossade was highly recommended as an abortionist. Having pocketed £15, George de Fossard and Helen Pickwode popped off for a few minutes as Captain Tickle watched their drinks. To anyone else, it looked as if they'd scooted off to buy some ciggies. But as Helen casually stood there and inhaled her cigarette smoke, a very different deadly poison swirled about the four-month-old fetus in her belly, having just ingested eight grams of ergotin. And now the termination had begun. That night, although a little bit anxious, Helen felt fine. Having performed an abortion many times before, Dufossard warned her of the risks and side effects and assured her that the termination would take four days. Having swallowed the pills on Wednesday, by Thursday she would feel nauseous. By Friday, the deceased fetus would be removed. And with two days of bed rest as a precautionary measure, by Sunday, she would be home, with her family none the wiser. To aid her recovery, Captain Tickle booked Helen into room 365 of the Mount Royal Hotel on Oxford Street. Obviously, he didn't book the room himself. He said he was far too busy, so he got a friend to do it. And although he paid for the room, in cash, he didn't want his good name sullied by such a sordid thing, so he had it booked in Helen's name. And of course, wanting nothing more to do with the baby or Helen, he didn't bother to visit. He just threw money at the problem and hoped it would go away. And although it can't be proved whether Captain Tickle arranged the abortion, although the man he'd booked had performed abortions many times before and had been arrested and imprisoned twice prior, Georges Frederick Montague de Fossard wasn't a real doctor. In fact, he wasn't a doctor at all. Born on the 16th of March 1898 in Buchenberg, Germany, to a British mother and a Russian father, it's true that de Fassade trained in medicine at King's College, but being broke, having quit after just nine months, 
he set himself up as a plastic surgeon and an abortionist, having gained no qualifications. On Friday the 15th of May 1942, in room 365 of the Mount Royal Hotel, with her life in his hands, and dressed in nothing but a light pink nightie, Helen lay back on the dark green double bed. Its colour coordinated to match the carpet, the curtains, the sink and the walls, in a shade about as subtle as surgical scrubs. Aided by little more than a handful of very basic medical items, towels, hot water, a glass funnel, forceps, and a length of rubber tubing. Although the operation was done without any anaesthetic, Helen felt only an odd twinge, as between her trembling legs, with no tears, no cries, and no squeal, she caught a brief glimpse of a little baby boy barely the size of the doctor's hand, but fully formed in every way. And although her baby was perfect, already he was dead. With two days' food in the cupboard of the kitchenette, a bottle of painkillers on the bedside table, and a stash of sanitary towels to stem the blood flow, De Fossard left Helen to rest. And there she lay, feeling alone and empty, in the echoing silence of room 365 of the Mount Royal Hotel. Her parents unaware, her boyfriend absent, and somewhere in London, the perfect little body of her supposedly shameful sin was being disposed of in a bin. And for the next two days, she cried, but not in grief. On Saturday the 16th of May 1942, at 8.40pm, a full 32 hours after the abortion, Neil Barclay received a phone call. Hello? After a short silence, the caller's voice cracked with tears at the reassuring sound of her friend. Neil? Helen? Is everything okay? No. The baby's out, but... something went wrong. And that's all the words he needed to hear. As a loyal friend, as his wife Mary watched over the kids, Neil caught the midnight train to London, and by 9.15am, on Sunday the 17th of May 1942, Neil arrived at the Royal Mount Hotel. As all the while, Captain Tickle slept soundly in his bed. Inside room 365, the first thing Neil saw on Helen's sweat-soaked face 
was her sweet smile. And as he clutched her hand and gave her a big hug, she knew everything was going to be okay. But as he looked around her, the room told a different story. Everywhere, on every surface, lay a chaotic mix of syringes, swabs and small glass bottles. As if, in a feverish panic, an incompetent medic had wheeled his whole surgery in and injected her with drug after drug, in the hope that one would work. And even though the overpowering aroma of methylated spirit stung Neil's eyes, it wasn't this medical smell which would forever be burned into his brain. A foul stench of rotting meat hung in the air. A fetid and putrid smell, so repulsive, it made Neil recoil and wretch. As amongst the sea of bloodied sanitary towels and clumps of matted cotton rolls, which littered the floor, a swarm of flies swirled, making it look as if the carpet was crawling to escape. On the previously green bedspread lay Helen, her flushed face a ghostly white, and her brown eyes all bloodshot and red. As with a gas mask covering her mouth, she gulped great glugs of oxygen from a large metal cylinder. And although her baby was gone, still she writhed in pain, groaning and panting her stomach all distended and swollen, as her exhausted body sat slumped amongst a sea of sweat, vomit and brown vaginal discharge. Some new and fresh, some old and congealed. Neil tried his best to hide his horror behind a mask of hopefulness, but Helen knew the truth. By her side stood George de Facade. Whatever he had done, he'd done wrong. And whatever he was doing, it wasn't working. As he scrawled down her fluctuating temperature on the back of a fag packet. And although he was unqualified, one thing he knew for certain. Although the baby was out, Parts of the placenta were not. And of those bloody ruptured pieces which had remained within her, all had gone rotten, rancid and septic. Helen was in serious danger, but unwilling to call an ambulance for fear of arrest, and believing he knew best, the unqualified doctor gave her more insulin and for the next four hours he did nothing. By 6pm being drenched in sweat Helen's heart rate erratically peaked at 200 beats per minute twice its normal pulse and with her body temperature 
being too high to record, suspecting that her death was literally hours away. De Fassade finally bit the bullet and called a professional. By 8pm, with Neil holding Helen upright, her scalding skin too hot to touch, she was taken to number 15 King's Court in Chelsea, the surgery of Dr Ernest Bloomberg, a widely respected and highly qualified doctor. Seeing her obvious distress, weakened state, and a stinking brown liquid oozing from between her legs, Dr Bloomberg examined Helen in his sterilised operating room. Very quickly he noted a jagged tear on the anterior wall of her cervix, the telltale sign of a botched abortion, and with her body being poisoned to death by acute peritonitis, the doctor administered a strong antibiotic, a safe anaesthetic. He carefully removed every piece of putrefying placenta and flushed out her cervix with two pints of strong detergent. By 10pm, with her pulse calmer, her temperature down, and her swelling subsiding, being pain-free, Helen's sweet smile had returned. And although Dr Bloomberg couldn't prove that it was Dufossard who had incompetently performed this illegal abortion, he recommended that as a precaution, Helen be taken to the nearest hospital. By 10.15pm, Helen walked out of the surgery unaided. By 11pm, being too afraid of being arrested, de Fossard had driven her back to room 305 at the Mount Royal Hotel, and with the airless room being stiflingly hot and with the windows shut, the congealed vomit and caked blood had turned into a feeding frenzy of bacteria, flies and maggots. On Monday the 18th of May 1942, after a restful night's sleep, Helen was feeling weak but well. On Tuesday the 19th of May 1942, being restless and sore, Helen's swelling had returned. Along with the fetid stench of rotting flesh, and as she thrashed about, sweating and screaming, the brown liquid oozed from her nostrils. By 6.30 the next morning, having lapsed into a coma, 27-year-old Helen Mary Pickwood was dead. When informed of Helen's death, Although Captain Tickle claimed to be upset, he shed no tears, said no prayers, and even though he was only a few doors away at Maison Lyonnaise in the Cumberland Hotel, 
he never entered the Mount Royal Hotel or room 365, where his girlfriend was dead. In a lengthy trial, lasting almost a month, beginning on the 4th of June 1942 at the Old Bailey, both men were charged with manslaughter and conspiring to perform an illegal abortion. They pleaded not guilty. On Friday the 2nd of July 1942, 44-year-old German national, Georges Frederick Montague de Fossard, with his low whispering voice, his nervous shake, his suspiciously blinking eyes, and two prior convictions as an abortionist, was found guilty of manslaughter and was sentenced to five years in prison. And 37-year-old Captain Edward Gerard Tickle, the natural-born charmer with chiselled good looks, which could lure in any lovely lady, and a cheeky chatter which he used to talk his way out of any trouble. Although to the police his guilt was obvious, with Tickle having not booked the hotel room himself, having paid for the abortion in cash, and with no witnesses able to confirm whether he was anywhere near room 365 of the Mount Royal Hotel at any time during Helen's life or death, Captain Edward Tickle was found not guilty. And once again, being born into wealth and privilege, he walked away without any conscience or consequence. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget to stay tuned to Extra Mile after the break. A big thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters, who get exclusive access to lots of secret and often rather sexy Murder Mile stuff, as well as a personal thank you for myself. This week, they are Susie Atkins and Gary Lant. Thank you guys, you truly are super duper. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. 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 Hello, friends. Welcome to Extra Mile. I say this every week, but there we go, let's say it. Uh, if, if this is your first time tuning into Extra Mile, um, this is me, this is Mike. I was just doing the uh, bit you just listened to before. This is Extra Mile, this is the extra bit. This is where we dive into the episode a little bit more with a bit of a chat as well. Uh, it's unscripted, it's unedited. Uh, there will be mistakes throughout, so don't message me saying oh, you made a mistake in Extra Mile. It does not count in Extra Mile. I can say whatever I like in Extra Mile. Uh, but what I do is I, I, it's off the cuff and I dive into the episode a little bit more. Give you kind of information that you normally wouldn't have listening through to the early part of the episode. Uh, it's not compulsory. You don't have to listen to this bit if you don't want to, but people seem to enjoy it. And you know what I do as well? I actually find after after the stress of researching and writing that episode and recording it and the recording is quite stressful and the writing is stressful uh, this bit is quite cathartic i quite enjoy it uh this is an unusual sound uh normally because i record in the mornings uh i normally have a cup of tea but oh god that's good hang on i'm having a beer why because normally this is my routine okay so Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I write the episode. I'm normally polishing it by Wednesday night. Um, and then Thursday morning, I start recording. Uh, and then that gives me Thursday afternoon to do a real polish of the audio. Because if you're like me, you hate things like this. You hate... And kind of... The kind of mouth sounds are really annoys me. When... You know, you can hear people people's mouth moving oh, it just upsets me so I, I i spend at least a good half day going through all the audio except on this bit um on the main part and just getting rid of all the all the breath sounds and things like that so uh yeah uh, so that takes me up to thursday and then friday saturday that's when i do the kind of the real edit of the show i do kind of a, a run through it and i work out uh where all the beats are where the music's going to go in and out this is not I don't just throw music in, uh, I plan it, I plan it all, so I know how long each section is going to be, if it's 3 minutes 30, I will look for a piece of music that's between 3.30 and 3.45, and then I normally edit the audio around that, um, and, and all the sound effects and all that, so that takes me up to Saturday, then Sunday's morning I do Murder Mile, The Walk, uh, and then Sunday afternoon I start doing, uh, I start re-going through the research for the next episode so I can start rewriting Monday morning. That's my week. I literally don't have any time off. Uh, but this episode, jeez, didn't take three days to write. It took four days to write. And the last episode, the Iraqi one, in total, took eight days. 
So yeah, I don't know why these are taking longer. Maybe I'm putting more into them. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely, as I was writing this, I, I said to myself, this is, because I overran with the last episode and the one before, I was like, this needs to be a shorter episode. And I kept saying it has to be five pages. Five pages is about 35 minutes. But then I realised I was getting up to about, I, I, I got up to about nine pages and I was like, shit. So I had to back off. I had to literally go through and start editing stuff out. Uh, which is good. It's nice to have a more con concise episode rather than a waffle. I don't like waffles, so I went through and I cut a lot of, a lot of stuff out. Uh, but hopefully it's made for a, a better episode. But that does mean if if I am running slightly over and these are like eight, eight days to do an episode, I may need to break up this season with some extra miles. But I was planning to do that anyway to get myself catch caught up with stuff but i'll be doing i'm planning some interest really interesting murder miles this time um i won't go into them now but you know they could be good so um let's dive into this episode this was the uh i still would say murder of uh, helen mary pickwood it was manslaughter uh and negligence but do you know it just did uh, i'm sure that we can have murder by incompetence I'm sure we should have murder by incompetence. They were just incompetent. Uh, there's a lot more incompetence in this. Incompetence and arrogance. Let's not forget that. Uh, there's a lot more incompetence that I couldn't put into the episode, but I will go into that very shortly. Um, so if you're aware of this case, just for pedancer out there, if there's anyone who is pedantic, um, Edward... Captain Edward Tickle, lovely name, isn't it? Edward Tickle. The first time I saw that, I was like, that's fantastic. But he's such a bastard. I didn't know whether to play that all the way through, whether to call him Tickle all the way through, because it's such a nice name at the start. You go, she fell in love with a man called Captain Tickle. And it's like, oh, you're like, oh, he's going to be nice. But he turns into a bit of a shit. And you're like, oh, I hate him instantly. He is a shit. And I did consider not calling him Tickle anymore in the episode. But then I realised the more I call him Captain Tickle or Edward Tickle, or I just call him Tickle, the less funnier it becomes. And I think that's kind of useful. It kind of, all of a sudden, you kind of get slightly angry at yourself for finding him amusing and his name amusing. And now it's like, I hate him. Anyway, um, Helen never referred to him as Edward at all he didn't like being called edward it was a name he really hated he preferred to be called gerard which is his middle name um but for the sake of uh brevity and clarity i decided to call just to call him edward or i never called him gerard in this except when we used his full name um i just felt it was better for clarity so if anyone is a pedant and they know this case well which i doubt because that's the point of Murder Mile, is me trying to find cases that you don't know, that you won't know what the ending is, and it'll kind of surprise you. Um, so for Bedance, she called him Gerard, he called himself Gerard. I decided to call him Edward, because that's his first name, and I'm sure it would have pissed him off, and that's a good thing. Uh, so, um, both Edward and Helen... Oh, I'm going to have another drink. Oh, that's nice. It's warm, but who cares? Um... Uh, so both Helen and Edward worked at the postal censorship office. There were, this was during, uh, there's always been a censorship office as far as I know, but it was especially prominent during World War Two, uh, or during, really during any periods of unrest. So, um, 
Yeah, or kind of any state, uh, civil disorder or state of emergency, there is always a, a kind of a postal censorship office where the government can go through and they can examine your post and just to check to see whether it's sensitive for any reasons, as mentioned in the um, the episode just gone. So whether whether there's anything sensitive in there, whether there's maps, whether anything to do with troop movements, uh, mentioning about places places of uh, military bases or mentioning of uh, anything political or illegal such as um, uh, abortions so they were involved in that there was different offices all around the country there's one in Liverpool which was the main one but there's also one in London in the war office as well which is quite a fascinating job I'd love to know more about this um uh, da, 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 da. Um, it, one thing that I didn't put into the episode because it slowed it down, I took it out. Um, when Georges de Fossard, fantastic name, Georges George Montague de Fossard, uh, it was actually his, his full title is, oh god, what was it called? Uh, George Frederick Montague de Fossard, uh, uh, Comte de Vatan. Um, so it's a full title, so Count, Count of Vatan. Um, I didn't put all that in because it just slowed it all down. It made you want to concentrate a little bit too much on Georges de Fassade when really this was kind of Helen's story. But I so said, you know, I mentioned in there uh, that he'd obviously failed all of his exams. Uh, he wasn't qualified in anything, but he set himself up as a plastic surgeon, which was kind of new in that area around the time. It, I think a lot of surgeons were developing uh, plastic surgery after World War Two, and especially it become very prominent in sorry World War One. It become prominent in World War Two, uh, and because it was largely unregulated, a lot of people had set themselves up as plastic surgeons. So um, when Georges de Fassade, Captain Tickle, and Helen met outside the Denmark Public House, uh, just off Old Brompton Road, uh, the uh, the pub is still there, but it's uh, it's a kind of uh, gastro pub at the moment. It's called I think it's called Bimbles or something. Um, immediately opposite there is a very thin house at uh, Number One Clareville Grove. Uh, that was where Georges de Fassade lived. That's where they disappeared for those ten minutes. He disappeared over to uh, they disappeared over to his house, which. Uh, is where he lived but he also had a full surgery in there so I made slight reference to that during the episode that he brought his surgery across hence the uh, bottle of oxygen and all the all the uh, all the syringes and the vials he bought all that with him because he'd got all that kit there but that was his surgery as well which I find baffling um, maybe this is what he did but with the abortion why didn't he conduct the abortion in number one Clairville Grove where his surgery was why didn't he do it there maybe he didn't want to maybe he didn't want her associated with his surgery this kind of illegal act uh or maybe he felt that she had to uh, after the abortion she needed to rest and hence being at a hotel but if that was the case why did he usher her all the way across town to uh the King's Road in Chelsea to visit the other doctor I know that was an emergency but kind of a weird thing to do so why didn't he use his surgery don't know um one thing that i had to cut out for time and also because it slowed down the story but it's equally fascinating is so 
Helen had uh, acute peritonitis owing to the... I apologise for the descriptions in here, but I felt we had to go for the full descriptions to, you know... I think I wanted you to feel what Helen would have felt, and it's... You can't... I don't think you can get around this by saying she was feeling slightly unwell and, you know, she had a bit of a dicky tummy. I think you've got to admit that there is brown discharge oozing from her. Um, So, um... Obviously, uh, she had acute peritonitis. She was literally hours from dying. They decided to take her to uh, Dr. Ernest Bloomberg over at uh, 15 Kings Road over in Chelsea. And he was that qualified doctor who was really great. And he was like, yeah, I can see what this is. It's a botched abortion. This is what we do. Blah, blah, blah. And she started to improve. Like, within two hours, she was like, right, I'm back. Great. She just needs rest now. And then uh, Dufasad took her back to the rather unsavoury and unkempt and unhygienic um, Mount Royal Hotel, and that's kind of where she died. The night before she died, so probably around midnight, she was starting to get really bad, like really, really bad. So, uh, Dufasad decided to call up Dr Bloomberg again to say uh, she's t- taking a turn for the worse. Obviously, he didn't mention that he'd taken her into a, f- a cesspit of filth, uh unfortunately dr bloomberg wasn't there he was away on a call so uh the call was rerouted to dr bloomberg's father who was uh jacob jacob moritz bloomberg um and what jacob moritz bloomberg or as they call him bloomberg senior uh what he would do is when his son was away doing doctory things the father would go because the doctor uh uh bloomberg senior would assist Problem is, Doctor uh, Bloomberg Senior. I have to keep tripping myself up on this. I keep calling him Doctor Bloomberg Senior, but he's not a doctor. He literally was just a man who would assist his son in operations and things like that. So he really didn't know what he was doing, but he could do basic medical stuff. So this was about about quarter to one in the morning. So maybe about five hours before Helen died. So De Facade was there. Neil was there. Uh, Bloomberg Senior was there. Uh, he was asked to bring some more oxygen as well, as well as, well as, well as some camphor. Uh, Helen was in a really bad state. She was barely conscious. She was drifting in and out of consciousness. She could barely speak. Her pulse was high. She was dying. Um, and the, that was the problem. Is is It looked as if technically there were two doctors in the room, but neither of them were doctors. In fact, both of them had worked as assistants to other doctors, but they'd never been doctors themselves. Uh, and they were both given her uh, injections to try and help her, and she bo- and she passed away. She passed away around six thirty. She drifted into uh, a coma, and then at six thirty, she died. Um, which is kind of really sad, really. If only, she, if if only the, the law at that time, because it was all entirely illegal in nineteen forty-two. Abortion was entirely illegal. It wasn't until the Abortion Act in Britain of uh, sorry I refrain that uh, it wasn't until the abortion act of 1967 in England Wales and Scotland I have to clarify that it's not Britain because uh, Ireland has its own entire rules um, prior after that abortions were allowed up to the 28 week gestation period but prior to 1967 entirely illegal hence Many women had to use black market, uh, black market, back, back street abortionists, which is entirely illegal. It was done in an unsanitary way. 
the chance of death between of mother and baby was incredibly high but you know for some women it was the only option really um uh one thing that i i couldn't go into uh in this case which i thought was quite interesting but i i kept trying to put it in but i couldn't find a way to conveniently put it in because obviously there's a lot of similarities between the blackout rippers you know you've got woman lying on a bed um blood emanating from her her lady bits um this happened in 1942 uh just three months after the blackout ripper so this was around the around the time that the blackout ripper was going to trial and the detectives involved in this case were detective detective uh, divisional detective inspector john freshney a divisional chief inspector leonard clare and uh, divisional doctor Alexander Baldy, all were in, who were involved, if you remember, in the uh, Blackout Ripper case, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and um, even though they'd already got Doctor Alexander Baldy, who'd done the autopsy, and he'd already confirmed, he, he'd already confirmed. You know, they'd found the bloody forceps, and they'd looked at her, and they'd found th- there was actually two slashes inside her uh, anterior wall of her cervix. And they determined it was an illegal abortion. And because Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the Home Office pathologist, was passing through town on the way in to go to uh, Paddington Mortuary, he popped in while he was there on his way and he confirmed as well. He said, yeah, this is an illegal abortion. Uh, so it was interesting that we got the, the same characters there for the Blackout Ripper. Um, I would love to know what happened to uh, Edward Tickle. Uh, as far as I know, uh, he... He lived for the rest of his life in Hampstead in North London, which was kind of where he went to school. And he died in around 1967-ish. 1967 with the uh, in- introduction of the Abortion Act. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Um, and uh, Georges de Fassade, I don't know. I've searched, I've looked. He's, he did serve his full five years. He he didn't get early release for uh, good behaviour. He he left on the day. On the, He did absolutely five years. Um, whether he was arrested again, I don't know. I did search. Uh, I couldn't find anything on him at all, which is really frustrating. Uh, so I hope that was interesting. Um, obviously, I've been... Ooh, drink time. Oh, that recording was awkward. There's a guy next door on a boat who's been playing some uh, some Shirley Bassey. I don't know how I'm going to edit that out. It's really annoying. Just, oh, I just kept wishing he would bugger off. Uh, you can probably still hear him now. Maybe I might kill him. Mm. Um, <laughs> with these, uh, uh, in these episodes, I've been asking you guys for questions. If you do have any questions, please do message me. I will answer absolutely any question. Uh, it can be do do with the cases or to do with how things are, uh, how I organise things or how I, etc. 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 Blah blah blah. You can tell I'm tired. It's gone late now. Uh, <laughs> I'm really tired. Uh, it's been a long day. Um, so I have been asking for questions. I got one through on uh, the Murder Mile True Crime podcast discussion group on Facebook uh, from Red Mustang. Fantastic name, Red Mustang. Uh, much more interesting than my name. Um, now, uh, Red asked a uh, an excellent question uh, on the forum. And I hope you don't mind. I thought I'd share it on here because it's really interesting. And the question was, Michael, can I ask? You can actually, yeah. Um, when you do your research, do you research multiple stories at this at a time, or do you, or do you research one story, and then follow it through to the end before reaching reaching uh, 
researching another one. By the way, loved your Jamaican, Jamaican accent. Uh, obviously, this episode, this has just come out after uh, the second episode in uh, season two, uh, which was the Brian Alexander Robinson one. Hope you enjoyed that. I enjoyed doing the Jamaican accents. I apologise to anyone who was Jamaican. Um, so yeah, uh, Red's question, fantastic question. Do I so do I research multiple stories or just one at a time? What I do is I research multiple stories at the same time because I get easily bored. Uh, and also it takes a while for my brain to kind of work out what how, what kind of story I want to tell. Because what I don't do is I don't just sit down and go cradle to grave. I don't just tell you the story. Because there's nothing more boring than just someone who's just going through Wikipedia and just telling you a chronology of what happened. Someone met someone and then they got stabbed and their head got off. Oh, so boring. I can't be asked with that. It's just really tired. What I like to do is find an angle. So... Uh, with this story, obviously the angle for this, nice and simple, uh, it's a love story between Helen and Edward Tickle. Obviously with the focus on Helen because she is, she's the victim. Uh, with the Brian Alexander Robinson one, the Jamaican one we just did, I could have told it any of the, any of the ways. I could have told it um, from the victim story, which, you know, more normally, as with this one, normally I try to aim go in the victim's direction uh but obviously with johnny howard and his friends being a little bit racist a little bit racist i just couldn't i mentioned this in the last one i i just couldn't i couldn't follow them i wasn't interested in what they had to say so i just didn't go that direction uh so with the brian alexander robinson because he was disabled because he'd been abandoned by his mom he got disabled he's got uh his dad had died you know it just made him far more interesting and he was and he was a black man in a racially motivated period of time so it made it more interesting uh so yeah but what what i do is i research multiple cases and then i put them aside and then I, then I go through them in my head and I try and work my way through them. I try and find the, the, the angle or the story or, or the, the side of it that I want to tell. And then when I've worked out what it is that I want to say, then I do that. That's what I do. So, uh, so yeah. So, with oh, what was that first episode I did? Oh, I can't, see, I can't remember his name. The, the guy who killed his brother and his... Uh, almost killed his brother and his sister and then he killed his dad in in the restaurant that used to be Primark. God, I'm tired. Um, with that one, that was kind of... Although he, although he was a mass murderer or a spree killer, that was really about his mental decline and that was, that was the angle in it. It's about his mental decline. Um, with the Jamaican story on, on part episode two, that was about you know racial motivation and a young man who's standing who hadn't got family and was standing up for those he believed were his family that was the angle with that one um so with this one what was this one yeah no this this was the love story so so that's what i do that's what i do with these episodes i, I try and find an angle and uh, hence hence i'm not really telling you what the next episode is it's not to keep it a secret it's because i don't know I really don't know. I, in fact, I was just looking at my list of episodes coming up, and I've all, I already know what the next, what the twenty-four episodes are. It's just at the moment I'm rejigging them because some of them I'm like, I don't want to tell that story yet. I kind of, you know, trying to work it out. Oh, did that make sense? Probably waffling. I, I don't think that makes sense. So, 
should never, never record in, the, in an evening. Uh, so, um, after my original Extra Mile, the original, original ones that got me doing all of these, there's been a lot of people giving, uh, saying some really nice things online about the fact that, you know, I, uh, as a dyslexic, I do kind of struggle with um, not just reading, but for me, it's especially kind of reading and verbalising. That's my kind of thing. It's uh, I don't have a problem with math, the mathematical side of dyslexia, and I don't have a problem. I don't think I have a problem with reading and translating into my head, but I have a problem with the other side of it, which is it it, it goes from eye to ear, so eye to brain, which is fine, but from brain to mouth doesn't really work. Hence, I get I get stuck on words like who. I could I could spend ages just looking at the word who and saying hua, hua. My brain just can't process it. So that's the kind of dyslexia I have. Uh, so I thought I'd do some tips on what I what I've done over the years to battle it. Um, because do you know, knowing I was dyslexic almost stopped me wanting, stopped me writing. I really wanted to be a writer, and I thought, I thought I couldn't be a writer because I was dyslexic. Um, but you know, over the years, I've kind of learnt learnt to battle it and conquer it, and just make use to use of it as well. So I thought I'd I'd, um, I'd I'll give you all tips for any of those who are out there, or even if you're not dyslexic, you know, th- there are some useful tips in there to help you if you've got to do public speaking as well. Because um, I've done public speaking, I used to do stand up comedy and character comedy, and uh, you know, write my own plays and things like that, which is a great way around being a dyslexic. You kind of learn to combat things through that. So uh, I found out I was dyslexic by by accident uh believe it or not i didn't know because uh, i've been di- diagnosed with a degenerative eye condition when i was about 12 and my eyesight was really going downhill really fast and basically my eye specialist was like look if we don't arrest this now by the age of 40 you're going to be blind and it was like shit that was a real panic all of all of my hopes and dreams had basically just disappeared i was like do you know what why to be a writer thought if you can't see a screen, what's the point? Wanted to be was a photographer for a bit. Around the age of fifteen, I couldn't focus a camera anymore, and I was like, "Shit, okay, that's gone." Wanted to be a filmmaker, knew I couldn't be a filmmaker. So all my dreams were disappearing. So I was trying. So I was spent many years trying to work out what it was I was going to do with my life. Because if you know that by the time you get to the forties, you won't be able to see what really is the point. Really, uh, so when I was when I was at uh, college, so sixteen to eighteen, I was doing drama or theatre studies, as we used to call it. Um, and what we'd have to do is we'd uh, every day you'd a, a book would come out, a, a theatre piece, and we'd uh, would all have to read in a circle. And basically, our uh, theatre tutor, Mister Sandal, Rooty Tooty, uh, <laughs> used to uh, we used to get given a book. And we go around in a circle and we'd all read a bit each and he'd go, right, everyone read a paragraph each and then we, you know, it's vocalising the drama. Um, and after a while I realised that he'd stop saying read a paragraph, he'd say read whatever you like. And then I started realising that he would start with the person to the left of me and then he'd go clockwise. So he'd, he'd always, no matter where I was sitting, he'd leave me last and I think that's because it was kind of embarrassing that I, I couldn't read simple words. I was really struggling by that point because I hadn't really worked my way around it. Um, so um, it, it was then that I discovered that I'd, I'd actually got dyslexia and I really didn't know uh, what to do with it. Um, 
Luckily, well, by the time I get to 32, I got a really good eye specialist. He was really good, and he said to me, you know, uh, if you let me do what I need to do, uh, I think I can arrest your uh, eye condition. And hopefully by the... by, He actually said kind of, hopefully by the age of around 32. Uh, he said, hopefully I'll have arrested it, and then we can kind of move on from there. And weirdly, when I was 32, kind of, I'd, I'd go to see him every year, and I was... Over all the years, I'd be looking at the chart and like each year like bits would disappear and I couldn't read bits and bits and then for the for three years I basically got to the point where I was remembering I'd be looking at the chart and I'd remember like x y z k v d g and I was like seeing the same words all the time and I was like and then all of a sudden he turned around and said I think we've done it I think we've arrested it so my eyes aren't getting any worse which is good um and that really helped so uh, by that point, I was like, OK, well, maybe I can start being a writer because I hadn't given up on being a writer. I was still kind of writing in my spare time, like feverishly writing scripts away, hoping to write as much as I could before before I just went blind. Um, but that really helped me because I because I knew by that point I got dyslexia. That really helped me work out kind of little tricks. So if you're dyslexic. Uh, or even if you just have difficulty with reading at all. Um, here's my little tips. Uh, number one, never read out loud. Now, I say never, but if you have to, of which I have to, <laughs> imagine if I did a podcast and I didn't read out loud. That would be a really quiet podcast. Uh, my tip is to always rehearse it. So one thing that I used to do at the start, a lot of these recordings would take me far too long to record um, because I'd be tripping over words. Whereas what I've realised is now is go through it a couple of times, rehearse it, rehearse it, just keep reading it and rereading it. And then this became even more important, rewrite it. And even if this is something that you've never written yourself, just write it up. Like if you have to read... Uh, an extract of someone's book the next day or whatever like some text or something get your laptop out or typewriter and type it out and actually physically typing it out helps your brain memorize the words i find that really useful so rewriting my own stuff uh really helps as well and also when you're writing it say it with your mouth now i know that sounds really weird but it's exactly the same way as uh, like a, a footballer or a, so a soccer player. Soccer player, as Americans would say. Um, a soccer player doesn't literally just stand in front of a ball and kick it into a goal. It doesn't happen. It's literally thousands and thousands of attempts of kicking the ball. And by the time that he's learned how to kick a fantastic goal, it's because the football player knows exactly what angle and speed and timing. And it's all muscle memory. And what I've learnt with reading as well is it's muscle memory. So with this one, I didn't do enough. I didn't train myself enough for this one. So I, I so Georges de Fossard, I had to practice that very quickly whilst recording this. I had to go Georges de Fossard, Georges de Fossard. It's a hard thing to say. There's also in there, I think uh, they lived in a little Oxfordshire village. Oxfordshire village, try and say that. They lived in a little Oxfordshire village. It's like too many consonants to trip over but if there's things that you find difficult to say like oxfordshire village if you say it a couple of times you can your your lips learn to fold around the words properly it learns to trip onto the next word so i find that really useful 
Uh, also, yeah, uh, if you've got to rehe rehearse something, what a trick that I used to do. So I used to, uh, when I used to do my Edinburgh plays, and because it was me on stage by myself for a whole hour, uh, pretty much playing all of the roles, and it was to a pre-recorded sound effects so uh, track, so it had to be pin sharp. I couldn't miss a word, I couldn't miss a beat, I couldn't miss a microsecond, it had to be pin sharp. So uh, in order to train myself to get it right, I recorded everything onto a tape recorder first, uh, which I edited, so I took out all my stuttering and all that shite. Uh, and then you just play it back to yourself. So even like I, as I was walking around the shops, I would play back the speech that I was having to learn. And it's great because you're not concentrating on it, but it's going into your head. It's really useful. It's a, it's a very useful way to uh, to learn um, things, that, speeches, things like that. So um, there's some of my little tricks. Um, if you get if you get a chance, there's a really good book by Malcolm Gladwell, who does a really good pod podcast as well called... Um, David and Goliath, The Art of Battling Giants. And uh, in there is the story of... I can't remember the name of the guy. He's he's, uh, he's a guy uh, very, very dyslexic. Like, very dyslexic. To the point where the piece that Malcolm Gladwell has written about him is only 23 pages long. But he has said, I will never read it because it will take me nine months. And he's not lying. It literally is. He's, his dyslexia is really bad. But he always wanted to be a lawyer. And the problem with, with being a lawyer is you have to read lots of documents. And he can't read. He can't read fast. It's like it, a line would take him about five minutes. So not only did he learn a way around that by get, getting people to basically pray-see it to him and tell it to him his face. But through his life, because he can't read, he's learnt to read faces instead. Um, and he's now one. He's now one of one of America's best trial lawyers. I'm trying trying to remember which side of trial lawyering he is. It's it, it, he recently uh, took on a case uh, which was against. He was either Google or Microsoft, one of the big companies. And in the first day, he got them to drop lit pretty pretty much half of the case. Oh, it's litigation. That's, that's sorry. That's what he does. He's a litigator, but that's what he does. He's lit. He, that's his skill, and he's one of one of the best. So uh, you've, have re have read that book. It's really good. But also um, other famous people who are dyslexic as well. Sir Richard Branson, owner of Virgin. Um, I used to work with uh, Nick, who uh, created Virgin with Branson back in the seventies, and he said Branson is massively dyslexic. You will never see him read anything. He has people read stuff to him, but but he has a fantastic brain. He does everything in his head. Uh, and another person who British people will know, Americans might not know, is Ben Elton, of course. Ben Elton, who wrote uh, pretty much the bulk of Blackadder, uh, Young Ones, uh, novelist, playwright, <laughs> you name it, he's done it. He's massively dyslexic. And from what I've heard, um, when people used to get the scripts of the Young Ones off him, ready to perform they would say they were illegible you couldn't read them but you knew that they were funny and basically he gives his scripts to his who's i think it's his secretary who's known him for years she can read what he the what is written and she translates it into the real world which i think is fascinating Whew, so that was extra mile for this week hope that was interesting hope you enjoyed that uh i've no idea how i'm going to edit this episode uh, I should have. I should really have finished uh, editing it by now, but I haven't even started. And it's what time is it? Oh, it's ten o'clock at night. 
Oh my God, it's bedtime. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to sign off quick because I'm really tired. I need some food as well. I'm hungry. I lost my wallet last weekend. Yeah, at a concert. Yeah, I got a bit drunk. Lost my wallet. And I lost my mate Rich as well. Sorry about that, Rich. <laughs> Rich was trying to call me. Uh, I couldn't find my phone. Both of his phones <laughs> were out of juice. Uh, Rich couldn't call me. I was at a train station up north waiting for him. He was at a train station uh, in town. Uh, he slept in... Uh, well, he says King's Cross, but his text said Houston. Mm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that was interesting. So I, lo- I lost my wallet. Uh, so I've had no... and Because I've got no ID. Uh, uh, no ID and because my... Um, uh, what am I? Th- oh, so tired. Because my uh, I got no ID and my signature doesn't match my original original signature for my bank account, which I did thirty one years ago. What's the chances of that? Your signature not matching. I couldn't take out any money, which means I've got loads of uh, goodies to send off to Murder Mile fans hey, who've uh, won the Murder Mile competition. Uh, I'm hoping to get my card tomorrow, but I've had no money, which means I haven't been able to buy any food. Uh, so. Uh, I've been living off what's in my cupboards, and I so want. Luckily, I've got a beer hidden away. Ah, oh, God, I'm God, I'm hungry. I really am. I want some good stuff. So, <laughs> oh, I would, I would eat a coot. I would so eat a coot right now. Uh, oh, coot update. Uh, I'm elsewhere. I'm heading north at the moment because I move around a lot. Uh, I'm in a place where there's loads of geese, loads of Canadian geese going back and forth. Uh, also mandarins as well. Who were, oh no, Egyptian geese who are kind of uh, sandy brown with a kind of an orange nose. They're really fascinating. Uh, and I, I saw some oh, some little baby ducklings today. They were really sweet. They were really really tiny little. They're kind of not even palm size. They're really sweet. Uh, <laughs> so. That's Extra Mile for the week. Uh, if you've ch- <laughs> this is your first time listening to Extra Mile, you're probably not going to tune in again. <laughs> so that's me uh, signing off. I st- no one still told me how I should sign off. Uh, you st- you need to help me with this. I have no idea. That's why I'm waffling. Uh, so oh, I've got a drink in front of me. I am going to raise a drink to you as I am now. Uh, I'm going to have a slurp. And that is Michael from the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. Tripping over my words. Michael from the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. Signing off. Thank you and good night. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.